Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. The Korean War, with four million civilians dead and the country destroyed, provides enduring proof that the Cold War was really a hot war against liberation movements of the global South. Seventy years later, the war is still not ended officially. We hear from some of those who came to Capitol Hill to call for an end to this dangerous war game between nuclear powers. America's failure to end the war has facilitated relentless military buildup and instability on the Korean Peninsula, all bankrolled by U.S. taxpayers. And as the legal woes of Hunter Biden threatened to ensnare his father, the 46th president, we speak to historian Gerald Horn about Biden, the Ukraine connection, and also about the emerging New World Economic Order. We pose the troubling question whether or not a president is manipulating the foreign policy of his nation in order to cover up a scandal in which he is involved. That is a legitimate question to ask. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And before we get to our stories, first some headlines. What would have been the largest single employer strike in U.S. history was averted on July 25th when the Teamsters reached a tentative five-year contract hailed as an historic victory for American workers. According to the union, which represents 340,000 workers, the tentative contract includes wage increases for full and part-time UPS Teamsters, new health and safety protections such as in-cab air conditioning for larger delivery vehicles, an end to forced overtime on scheduled days off, and an end to a two-tier pay system for delivery drivers that created a different pay scale for new hires. Union members must still approve the deal. If they don't, there will be a strike following the voting period, which begins on August 3rd and ends on August 18th. Donald Trump is facing additional federal charges in connection with his alleged mishandling of classified documents. Trump already faces 37 federal charges for alleged unlawful possession and concealment of documents at his Palm Beach, Florida resort. Trump was charged by special counsel Jack Smith with four additional counts, including those related to requesting an employee to delete security camera footage at the resort. Another new charge is connected to Trump retaining a top secret document about war with Iran, and discussing it during a recorded interview with biographers. He may also face charges in Fulton County, Georgia, where prosecutors have been investigating his attempt to overturn his loss in the 2020 election. The Atlantic Ocean currents that drive warm water from the tropics toward Europe is at risk of collapsing in the coming decades. Failure of this system of currents, which includes the Gulf Stream, is one of the key tipping points long cited by climate scientists as having a major impact on the Earth. According to The Guardian, a collapse of this Atlantic meridional overturning circulation would have disastrous consequences around the world, quote, severely disrupting the rains that billions of people depend on for food in India, South America, and West Africa. 
It would increase storms and drop temperatures in Europe and lead to a rising sea level on the eastern coast of North America. It would also further endanger the Amazon rainforest and Antarctic ice sheets. Scientists continue to warn that activities such as new mining for fossil fuels and burning them must be halted. And finally, in culture and media, Covert Action Magazine is holding a live and virtual event on Monday, July 31st from 3 to 5.30 p.m. on blowing the whistle on covert action warfare and coercive economic sanctions. This fundraiser will occur the day after the memorial for Daniel Ellsberg in Washington, D.C. at the annual Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival. This event features CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou, Chris Agee, Jeremy Kuzmarov, Lou Wolf, Sarah Flounders, and government officials from heavily sanctioned countries. At Busboys and Poets, 450 K Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., or view the stream live or later at the Covert Action Magazine page on YouTube. For more information, go to covertactionmagazine.com. And those are headlines and happenings. Up next, voices calling for an end to the Korean War. And I bet you thought that war ended 70 years ago. Stay with us. Executive Director of Women Cross DMZ. We are an organization that advocates for peace in Korea. I will moderate today's press conference. Today, the United States and North Korea are one step away from a potential nuclear conflict. The U.S. recently sent two nuclear-capable submarines to South Korea for the first time in 42 years. And in response, North Korea said, this could justify their use of nuclear weapons. Today, we are gathered here on Capitol Hill to stand alongside our Korea peace champions in Congress to offer a solution that would improve our collective security, officially ending the Korean War with a peace agreement. Woo! 70 years ago, on July 27, 1953, U.S. and North Korean military commanders signed the armistice, halting the brutal Korean War that killed 4 million lives, separated 10 million Korean families, and leveled the entire Korean peninsula. 
The armistice was meant to be temporary and replaced with the peace settlement, but this never happened. And seven decades later, we are facing a security crisis in Korea and one that could impact all of us. But there is something we can do. We now have a bill, the Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act, H.R. 1369, that calls on President Biden to engage in serious, urgent diplomacy in pursuit of a binding peace agreement to end the Korean War. Nearly 50 co-sponsors signed on in support of this legislation in the last Congress, and we are well on our way to exceeding that number in this Congress. By comparison, in 2010, on the 60th anniversary of the Korean War, only two brave representatives, Dennis Kucinich and Barbara Lee, supported our calls. Our progress is the result of grassroots, people-powered movement. We are a broad coalition of multi-generational Korean Americans, veterans, humanitarian aid workers, and individuals whose families have been torn apart by war and division. Our speakers today reflect this diversity, and they will share how peace can help reunite families, bring closure to those searching for fallen soldiers in North Korea, improve the daily lives of North Korean people, and eliminate the threat of nuclear war. We're here to say, after decades of failed policy, the only pathway to resolve the impasse is for the U.S. to sign a peace agreement with North Korea. Now, I would like to invite the brave and courageous Congresswoman from California, Barbara Lee. Somebody that was in her district for many, many years at the Women of Color Resource Center and, and, and the Global Fund for Women, she was such a brave voice for peace. As we know, she is the only member of Congress who voted against giving George W. Bush authorization to use military war. And she was the one that knew 20 years ago this is not a war that we should get engaged in. And now we see the countless lives lost. The trillions of dollars spent, the millions of people killed and displaced. Barbara Lee speaks for me, and we are just so honored that she has been our foremost Korea peace champion. Thank you so much, Barbara. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. Thank you all. Because I was so proud to introduce the bill, one of two with Dennis Kucinich many years ago. Uh, and look at where we are now, and that's because of you. So thank you so much. And let me just say, uh, how important today is and recognize all of you and Christine and everyone here today for all the work that you're doing to promote peace on the Korean Peninsula. And yes, I have been to the DMZ and I know why this peace agreement <laughs> has got to happen. It is so important. And so this thank you for uh, staying the course. Today on the 70th anniversary of the Korean Armistice, we're gathering to urgently call for a true end to the war. Though few realize it, a true end. The Korean War is America's longest overseas conflict. America's failure to end the war has facilitated relentless military buildup and instability on the Korean Peninsula, all bankrolled by U.S. taxpayers. And make no mistake, peace on the Korean Peninsula, it's more important now than ever. 
Just last week, the U.S. deployed a nuclear-capable submarine to South Korea for the first time, mind you, first time in 42 years. 42 years. First time. Prompting North Korea to fire two short-range ballistic missiles into the sea. The recent detention of American soldier Travis King is another reminder of the lack of diplomatic relations between our countries. These developments make ending the war and investing in peace in the region absolutely essential. Now, my father served in the Korean War. Four million people were brutally killed in the war, mostly Korean civilians, but also 33,000 American soldiers. U.S. fighter planes destroyed 80% of North Korean cities, forcing millions of Korean civilians to flee their homes, separating at least 10 million families. Fighting paused with a fragile ceasefire in 1953, with American and North Korean military commanders recommending that the warring parties return within three months to negotiate a permanent solution. That's within three months. 1953. This is 2023. What has happened? We need a permanent solution. We need a peace agreement now. never happened. And so what you're doing today is so important. The continued unresolved war may seem like a technicality and a technical issue for so many people, but it's not. The human impact is massive, and the risk of a new conflict breaking out, it remains high. And yes, that's why initially I supported, alone with Congressman Kucinich, the two of us, the Korean Peninsula Act. Now we have Congressman Brad Sherman, we introduced H.R. 1369 and building congressional support. Thank you all again very much. Thank you. Our bill calls for urgent diplomacy in pursuit of a formal end to the Korean War. A formal end. A roadmap for a peace agreement and other diplomatic efforts to ensure a sustainable peace. This legislation offers a transformative peace first approach to ending the Korean War. Finally. Finally. The Korean War is known as the forgotten war in the United States. Most people think the war officially has ended. So this is unacceptable. It's time that we wake up from our collective amnesia to remember the death and destruction that this war entailed and chart a new path forward one based on global peace and security and rooted in human security. It's been my priority throughout my tenure in Congress to end these forever wars and to promote peace and diplomacy. That's the only way this world can be sustainable. It's not enough to treat the symptoms of endless wars. So we must put an end to the longest standing war in the United States history and commit to building lasting peace on the Korean Peninsula. Yes, it's time for Korea peace now. It's time. It's time. It's time. It's time. Okay, now we're going to quickly hear from the members of our community who want to share their personal testimonies of how much this unresolved war impacts their lives. 
Let me first bring Joy Gephardt. She is from a divided family. She's from Virginia. Joy. You're gonna have to, yeah. My name is Joy Lee Gephardt. My birth name is Lee Boxin. I have been a U.S. citizen for 62 years. I'm almost 90 years old. And I was born in an ancient city near Pyongyang called Dokchon, in what is now considered North Korea. I am one of millions of Koreans who became separated from their family during the Korean War. When the Korean War broke out in 1950, a family friend offered to take me to South Korea to avoid the bombing. With my mother's permission, I traveled to Seoul. I never saw her again. I was 16 years old. I came to America in 1956 as a student and did not learn my family was still alive in North Korea until 1988. For the next 27 years, I visited many times. I was told that from the day I left, my mother would ask for the gate to be left open each night, anticipating my return. She died within a month of my leaving. She was 46 years old. My last visit with my family was in 2016. In 2017, the U.S. ban on Americans traveling to North Korea prevented my return. All the letters, packages I sent were returned, and I have not heard from my family in past seven years. As suddenly as I found my family, I have lost them again. With continued sanctions, the trauma of the unending war continues, adding to the personal trauma that is ever present with me. I have given my best to serve my adopted country, America, as a teacher, as a nurse, as a business owner, humanitarian, and taxpayer, but have given so little to my own family, the source of my being here today. I cannot visit my own flesh and blood. I cannot visit the graves of my parents, maybe for last time. I cannot even send letter to my siblings to say hello. This time is running out for me. As one of the oldest separated Korean-American families, I ask my government and the members of Congress to help to reunite remaining separated Korean families by supporting HR 
1369, the Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act, which calls for a binding peace agreement to end the war, a review of the Korean ban on U.S. citizens traveling to North Korea, and exemptions for separated family members so that we can see our family again. Stop the ongoing trauma. Heal our wounds and end the Korean War once and for all. Thank you. One of my poems. We never said goodbye. I cry in night as I see my mother in my dream. She welcomes me and says, So you are home. You have been away for so long. I cry in night in my dream, for I couldn't reach my mother. As I wake, it was just a dream. Still, I go home every night. Though my home is beyond the 38 parallel, I miss seeing my sisters and brother playing in the garden and the ducklings swimming in the pond. I miss my mother, to whom I never said Goodbye. She said softly as I was leaving, right often. Soul, soul is cold. Keep warm. Stay alive. She stood long by the gate watching me leaving. We never said goodbye. We never said goodbye. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joy, for um, sharing your deeply moving words. And now we will conclude our press conference with a brief testimony from our youngest member, her name is Hannah DeVitton, and she is a 14-year-old actress. Hannah? And you're going to have to speak loud. Hello, my name is Hannah Marie Kim. I'm 14 years old. I live in Los Angeles, California, and I'm a rising ninth grader. Hannah, can you speak a little bit more? Yeah. I'm here to represent Gen Z and Korean American youth who want peace in the world and on the, and on the Korean Peninsula. I'm a fifth generation member of a divided family. Like my great-great-grandfather, great-grandmother, grandmother, and mother, I'm working for an end to the Korean War and the reunion of separated families like mine. My great-great-grandfather was a philanthropist and a social reformer who traveled to the North in 1948 in an attempt to help the country reunify. When the division became permanent, he was unable to return to his family in the South and never saw them again. 
My great-grandmother was only 28 when the Korean War broke out in 1950. She took her elderly parents, in-laws, and three small children and, and fled south to, uh, from Seoul to Busan, where they spent three years as refugees. My grandmother remembers crossing a bridge over the Han River on foot as a four-year-old, while bombs exploded behind her. Firecrackers and loud sounds still bother her many, and she has spent her life seeking peace and healing. I'm here today because war is wrong and wasteful. Most people do not know that the Korean War never ended, and that we continue to spend billions and billions of dollars every year to win this war. Meanwhile, young people like me face a world of climate devastation and economic uncertainty. We need better education, health care, and security. Gen Z and Gen Alpha need peace, not war. I hope to visit my great-great-grandfather's gravesite and meet my North Korean relatives, relatives one day. It is unfair that American citizens cannot travel to North Korea because of the U.S. travel ban or that Koreans have been unable to cross the DMZ for over 70 years. We need an end to the Korean War so that I, along with millions of other young Koreans and Korean Americans, can move forward in a world of peace and cooperation. Thank you. I know that there's the next group that's coming, so thank you very much. And let's end with um, a great chant. What do we want? Peace! When do we want it? Yes. Now! What do we want? Peace! When do we want it? Right now! Korea, peace now! Korea, peace now! Korea, peace now! Korea, peace now! You just heard voices, including Representative Barbara Lee of California, speaking July 27th, 2023, on Capitol Hill, about ending the Korean War, 70 years after the armistice in that conflict, which killed 4 million Koreans and left the Korean Peninsula devastated. This is On the Ground. I'm Esther Averam. Stay with us. Slandering the victims, pointing out aggression. Somehow the angel of God kept that baby protected. Cause grandma prayed beyond the pictures in the necklace. It's shooting up our boys out here like tetanus. Where the rage, where the cries, where the lectures. Where the special team of inspectors made in America. Where the projectors, where the Lord to protect us. The media constantly want to infect us. Cops like the TSA, they want to inspect us. And if we don't cooperate, they shoot us or arrest us. But how you come from? It's kind of hard not to feel angry. I mean, frankly, these dudes is too swanky. I'm going to speak the truth, whether or not if you thank me. Plus, I do it for my ancestors mainly. You could never claim me, tame me or change me. Selective morality and free will ain't the same things. Different murder, different mother, the same screens. So consumed with stuff, we don't notice the plain things. Or real things or natural things. Prefer the fallacies over the factual things. The privileged oppressed too good for practice. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And now I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. And his most recent book, as you know, is Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. 
Well, there's so much happening in D.C. We have rallies marking the 70th anniversary of the armistice in the Korean War. At the same time in North Korea, massive rallies that are reported in terms of North Korean people celebrating this as Victory Day in terms of the armistice. And so in addition to that, I know that we want to talk about the upcoming summit of the BRICS nations. And this really, to me, involves the same history of the post-colonial world and what's shaping up as a new world order. So where do you want to start? Well, first of all, a footnote on what's happening in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. They have a very special guest speaking of the Russian Defense Minister Shoigu. And this bespeaks the ever closer relations between Russia and the DPRK, a direct response to the fact that South Korea is growing ever closer to the United States under the conservative leadership of President Yoon, and in fact has put a thumb in the eye of Korean patriots on both sides of the DMC, the militarized zone, by snuggling up to Japan which, as you know, is not a favorite on the Korean Peninsula, given its brutal colonial policies beginning in 1910. With regard to the Russia-Africa summit, which is unfolding as we speak, it also betokens this new world order that you're making reference to. Uh, recall that it was centuries ago that Western European nations got fat on the plunder of Africa, not least through the unlamented African slave trade. And we now see that independent and sovereign Africa, led by South Africa and President Ramaphosa, is not only meeting in St. Petersburg, Russia, along with a number of other heads of state and government from the African continent, including uh, President Mnangagwa of Zimbabwe and General Al-Sisi of Cairo, Egypt, uh, but a number of others as well. And at the same time, there are sidebar meetings referring to and representing uh, what you just mentioned, which is the upcoming uh, BRICS summit in South Africa in a few weeks. What I mean is in St. Petersburg, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, particularly the first four, uh, have their delegates there a meeting with African nations, a number of whom are applying to become members of BRICS. And this, as noted, suggests that we are in the midst not only of the obsolescence of the unipolar moment, which emerged post-1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the rise of the so-called sole remaining superpower, speaking of the United States of America, but a new world order is emerging, uh, led by the BRICS, involving African nations. And strikingly enough, these African nations, which were a rung on the ladder of the rise of British imperialism, the British Empire, the French Empire, etc., now are in on the ground floor as a new world order is emerging in St. Petersburg, Russia. At the same time, I'm reading headlines about continuing destabilization, for example, on the continent, for example, in Mali. And one article, it actually cited the U.S. troops in Africa, known as AFRICOM, and Russia's troops 
in the form of the Wagner Group uh, being equally involved in atrocities in Mali. And I thought it was strange because rarely do would we see any blame given to U.S. troops in terms of their actions abroad. But that's, that's one story I saw. And just in general, you still see stories that try to characterize the development that China does in Africa in the same vein as the colonial period, the colonial plunder you mentioned by the European countries and, and the U.S. Well, speaking of that part of Africa, I thought you were also going to mention the apparent coup in Niger, which is part of the Sahel, which right. it shares with its Western neighbor, speaking of Mali. The lingering question about this coup is whether or not special forces were involved, many of whom were trained, at least with regard to other coups, speaking of, for example, Burkina Faso and Guinea Conakry, uh, et cetera, uh, in the USA. Uh, that would not be a surprise given the close relationship between Niger and the United States uh, with regard to a complement of U.S. so-called advisors on the ground in Niger, uh, given the fact that Niger has been a launching pad for drone warfare east and west in that part of Africa, and also given the fact that Niger is a major supplier of uranium, which is not only essential for nuclear weapons, but also for nuclear energy. And recall that France is heavily dependent upon uranium from Niger to generate electricity through its nuclear plants. And so this apparent coup uh, in Niger uh, could be one more fact that we can point to with regard to the odious role of U.S. imperialism in that part of Africa in terms of sponsoring coups, in terms of helping to undermine governments. And I await a story from the corporate media that then goes on to equate that kind of piracy with what Russia and China are seeking to do in Africa. Well, the other big story, I guess to kind of bring it home, but still there are tentacles reaching abroad to all the various conflicts that the U.S. is involved in, federal judge uh, squashing the the plea that Hunter Biden received in his many cases um, resulting from the investigation on him. Uh, in other words, the, the plea deal was thrown out by a federal judge. And then he, I guess, pled guilty uh, to those charges instead of having this plea agreement. But I bring it up because there is more and more in corporate media here kind of bubbling up from just regular right wing corporate media about the connection between these Hunter Biden scandals and his father, who is the president. And while they may have been considered just kind of fringe stories before or stories that were promulgated by the far right targeting Biden, this story is not going away. Not going away indeed. And the Hunter Biden aborted plea agreement in Wilmington has many aspects. Apparently, defense counsel and prosecution were not on the same page with regard to the plea agreement 
apparently the defense counsel felt that the plea agreement would fundamentally end other kinds of criminal investigations into Mr. Hunter Biden's conduct. The prosecution apparently did not agree. Presumably, they'll get together and then come back uh, to the judge, and that will then lead to an amendment of these not guilty pleas that Hunter Biden entered uh, this past week. But certainly, the scandals involving the Biden family are becoming too obvious and odious and conspicuous to ignore. Not only the scandal involving Burisma, the Ukrainian giant that placed Hunter Biden on its board for a cool half million dollars a year, but then there are all of these references to 10% to the big guy, which is thought to be some sort of reference to the current U.S. president. And certainly when Mr. Biden was vice president and he was a frequent visitor to Ukraine and he was putting pressure for the regime to get rid of a prosecutor right. who was apparently pursuing cases inimical to the interests of some of the Biden's uh, investment interests, uh, that obviously has raised eyebrows. And as well, when I think of these scandals and the profiteering of the Bidens, I think of Hunter Biden's former spouse, who says in her book that she was gobsmacked when she visited the Biden home in Delaware and noticed that there was a ballroom in this mansion. I'm not sure when was the last time you were in a home that had a ballroom, Esther, but I I can say I've never been in a home that had a ballroom. And I think that that bespeaks this kind of profiteering, uh, which in some ways makes Mr. Biden a worthy competitor or an unworthy competitor, I should say, to the man who he will presumably challenge or be challenged by. Uh, speaking of uh, Mr. Donald J. Trump, the undisputed champion of grifting, according to his challenger, Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey. You know, a lot of our listeners will be hearing a lot of this information for the first time. For example, um, I'm going to play a clip of Joe Biden speaking before, I believe, the Council for Foreign Relations, where he brags about the fact that he intervened to get that prosecutor fired, who was investigating Burisma. Let's go to that clip. It's now went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and, uh, and I was going, supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had, they were walking out to press conference, said, no, nah. I said, I'm not going to, we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. The president said, I said, call him. <laughs> I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours. I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> Got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid. So that clip has been playing on, 
I wouldn't just say far right media or right wing media, but it's been playing on a lot of alternative media, uh, progressive media that is, uh, you know, more apt to challenge what is coming from the State Department or the White House. And so a lot of our listeners, listeners to Pacifica may not have heard that before, but that's been kind of like a smoking gun for a lot of the people who are actually looking into these things and not just considering them, you know, conspiracy theories. So I want to find out if you want to talk a little bit about how you think Joe Biden's connection to this Burisma scandal, his connection that we've laid out in terms of getting this prosecutor fired or this evidence that he did, how that might be related to this U.S. proxy war against Russia in Ukraine and the billions, tens of billions, I don't know, there are, say, hundreds of billions at this point spent to prop up Kiev. Well, we may be witnessing a highly disturbing trend amongst the North Atlantic countries. I think in comparison of former French President Nicolas Sarkozy, who you may recall was apparently receiving money under the table from the Gaddafi regime in Libya. A dead men tell no tales as the scandal was about to be exposed. There was a NATO bombing campaign in Libya, and I'm sure your listeners know the rest, uh, leading to the murder on camera of Mr. Gaddafi. Interestingly enough, this scandal involving Mr. Biden has earmarks similar to what we witnessed a decade or more ago in Libya. That is to say, can we pose the troubling question whether or not a president is manipulating the foreign policy of his nation in order to cover up a scandal in which he is involved? That is a legitimate question to ask, particularly since so many of our friends are putting so much emphasis on Mr. Biden as the man to take down Mr. Trump without necessarily considering all of the defects and liabilities that a Biden campaign brings to the table, not to mention the fact that the Ukrainian government, which Mr. Biden is so assiduously defending, is a sink of corruption. Uh, The latest scandal, as I'm sure you're familiar with, is this idea that Ukrainian women are becoming surrogates for the birth of children by rich North Atlantic residents. Hmm. And with those infants torn from their wombs and then deposited into households in Beverly Hills and the Hamptons, uh, you get a metaphor of the suffering that ordinary Ukrainian people have suffered as a result of this proxy war. And that's not to mention the other scandal, which is argon harvesting. Interestingly enough, argon harvesting is nothing new in formerly socialist countries. Recall that Brussels investigated a similar scandal in Kosovo, formerly part of socialist Yugoslavia, before that nation was destroyed some decades ago, particularly under the maladministration of one Bill Clinton. And now stories are emerging about organ harvesting. That is to say, seizing the kidneys or the corneas, 
dare I say, the hearts of the unwitting and transporting them to hospitals, transporting these organs to hospitals all over the world, particularly to the countries of the North Atlantic bloc. Now, this in some ways is a replica of the unlimited African slave trade in the sense that back then they were only, I should not say only, they were seizing bodies and transporting them across the Atlantic for people to work for free. Now they're seizing organs from bodies with presumably the victims either going to an early grave or being bereft of body parts that they obviously need desperately. Apparently, this is not just of, you know, possible, you know, soldiers who have been mowed down in this conflict and but also, you know, really disturbing reports of children who had gone missing from the Donbass. These are children from Russian speaking families who had gone missing from the Donbass from orphanages and they were never seen again. And, you know, the reports that either these children had been used for organ harvesting or put into sex trafficking. And so these things are so horrific, but when you really think about the 14,000, some estimates say as high as 18,000 people killed in the Donbass in the civil war that happened well before last year, in which mainly Russian, ethnic Russians, Russian-speaking people were killed in this uh, war uh, from Kiev, war by Kiev um, on its eastern citizens. You, when you think about that, then you realize there's no love there, uh, especially since there were many laws passed to basically outlaw Russian culture, Russian language, uh, Russian history being taught, which reminds us of here. And so you, you see that there the, about the hostility and the discrimination against that population, the utilization of neo-Nazis that refer to Russians and, you know, as subhuman, et cetera, then you see why this kind of scenario is, is likely. So, you know, we've seen reports about it and I assume more about it will be revealed as horrific as it is. I don't imagine that it can be swept under the rug much longer. Well, we shall see. But yeah. in any case, uh, more troubling news coming from the proxy war that is to say, I'm sure you saw the reports about a possible Polish-Lithuanian intervention in Western Ukraine, which the government of Belarus looks askance at. Uh, this could widen the war, according to President Lukashenko uh, in Minsk. The Wagner forces, uh, who, as you know, were involved in this mutiny against the Russian regime and now are disproportionately cited in Belarus, according to President Lukashenko, they're chopping at the bit, eager to settle scores with their antagonists, or their presumed antagonists, speaking of the Poles and the Lithuanians. And so this war could easily spread. And I hope and I trust that these other reports I've been hearing about the subterranean peace negotiations between Washington and Moscow, I trust and I hope those stories are accurate. Okay, well, as we start to wind up here, I wanted you to talk a little bit about 
you know, before we move to the domestic sphere, when we were talking about South Korea, I meant to add into that whole mix the sighting by the U.S. of nuclear submarines in in South Korea. And I'm wondering how that fits into the equation of, of even how the population uh, in South Korea is reacting to being the site of these uh, U.S. nuclear weapons. Well, I think President Yoon's popularity rating is declining rapidly. Recall that he was a recent visitor uh, to the Ukraine battlefront. Recall also that he has been supplying weapons uh, to the Ukrainian regime, oftentimes through U.S. sources. And I think that that helps to shed light on why the Russian defense minister Shoigu is presently in North Korea, because I think that that sends a thinly veiled message to Seoul that they should butt out of Ukraine. Uh, Otherwise, they may have a problem in their own backyard. Okay. So finally, just switching to our shores or within our borders, I, you know, as a professor, as someone who is tremendously involved in not only education, but education in terms of Black history, I wanted to definitely get your comments on the Ron DeSantis's this K through 12 plan coming out of Florida that that cites benefits of slavery and what I've been calling the the free job training that uh, their curriculum is citing that was given to the enslaved. And then finally, just talk a little bit about Alabama ignoring the Supreme Court's decision on voting rights. Well, with regard to Florida, uh, I gave an interview earlier this week with Press TV out of Iran. And one of the points that I made there is that clearly there is a schism with regard to the understanding of the history of this country. On the one hand, you have a growing movement that's seeking the truth with regard to how we got to this perilous point that is looking in a clear-eyed fashion, not only at the enslavement of Africans, but genocide against the indigenous. But for some, that truth conflicts with their apparent attempt to create a fictional uplifting narrative about the founding of this country in the late 18th century and how the founders did everything except walk on water. And so rather than deal with the truth, they are seeking to deep six the truth so that the youth in our country can be fed a fictional story, which ill prepares them to not only be workers struggling for rights and freedoms and liberties, but also prepare us the ground, I'm afraid to say, for a unique form of U.S. neo-fascism. With regard to that latter point, pay attention to what's happening in Alabama with regard to the GOP seeking to thumb its nose at a court decision which called upon the state to draw an additional black congressional district. I think that what's happening is that the GOP feels that they're going to generate a controversy, a case in controversy, to use the legal phrase, that will then wind up in the U.S. Supreme Court, which will then allow the six to three conservative majority to give a final burial to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, uh, which they sought to do a few years ago in the Shelby case, but now I guess they're going for the gusto altogether. 
Well, so in other words, they thought they would have a victory this time around in this case, which was first Milligan, now, but then Allen. But you think that they're seeking a second bite at the apple? Well, not only that, but recall the analogy to the LBGTQ rights case out of Colorado, where the Supreme Court majority held that a website designer did not necessarily have to entertain the business of a queer couple, even though uh, there was no queer couple knocking on the door to that particular enterprise. It was sort of a made-up case. It was a fabricated case. Exactly. And should have fallen by the wayside, but it did not. And so I guess that the latest strategy of the ultra-right wing is to manufacture cases and controversies, or I should just say manufacture controversies, to get them before the Supreme Court so that the Supreme Court can work its evil magic. Wow. Well, with the lethargy or the inattention of the Biden administration and the total ineffectiveness of the Democratic Party in terms of expanding the court or doing anything else to break this, what is going to be like the tyranny of the Supreme Court, I suppose that that their strategy is, uh, they, they have high hopes for that strategy. <laughs> well, I think we have to, we've run out of time. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter or patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow. You can also listen to our podcast on all your podcast platforms. And I also link to all the shows on my Instagram page, Esther underscore Averum. That's Ivy like Victor, E-R-E-M. The music we play this hour included Think by Aretha Franklin, How You Gonna Fall by The Crossroads, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.